Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Showgirl Tip of the Day podcast, podcast where we talk about show business, old friends, and new adventures. Today's guest is a wonderful performer and now director and teacher. His name is Brian Carmack. We first met on the national tour of Chicago the Musical. He has done several productions of that show and other shows such as Tommy, Carrie, Dance of the Vampires, Romeo and Juliet. After performing, he went back to school and got an MA in theater. We're going to be talking about that and we're going to be talking about, of course, show business. I want to welcome my special guest today to the podcast, Brian Carmack. How are you? <laughs> so you live in California now. How is California? California's it's California. The weather's good. The people are good. My family's good. I'm here with my family mostly because most of my friends are abroad, as you might know. Yes. And, um, my father has moved in this year, so that's been a an adjustment, but a healthy one, a good one for him. He's very happy. And, Excellent. Uh, yeah, and I'm working in the, at the college, which we'll get into, I guess, maybe. And, yeah. Um, and everything's going well. So usually I start an interview where I talk about the beginning of someone's career and move on. Right. But this interview, I want to talk about what led you to go to school, get your advanced degree. So and then we can work back towards Vienna. And we met on the national tour of Chicago, the musical. Yeah. So it's been quite a journey for you. So let's talk about the University of Santa Cruz. Yes. Well, well to do. Absolutely. I spent three years studying after going to community college, which um, I don't know where we want to start exactly. But if you want to start in Santa Cruz, that was after a long stint in community college trying to find my path again, because I had sort of left theater for a minute. And was futzing around in other courses and other areas of study. And then in 2014, I had a trip back to Europe that reunited me with my theater family. And I thought, what am I doing? You know, why am I not where I belong, which is in the theater? And so I went back to college in 2014 and I went into a program of study strictly with the theater department. And in a couple of years, finished that AA degree into an area of study at UC Santa Cruz in the theater department where I spent three years there, two to do my undergrad work that I never did when I was 18 because I was working already. So I was in the out in the field at that age. And so I went back and got my uh, bachelor's degree. And then directly following that, I decided that I needed to take another step forward, which would be a master's or an MFA. And I auditioned for a couple MFA programs. And unfortunately, as is the case in some cases, I was not accepted to these programs. And so I um, applied at UC Santa Cruz for their master's program, which was a one-year deal, which was great because I was sort of like, I'm at an age where I sort of want to get in get it done, get out and start my new chapter. So that's what I did. I spent a year in the master's program at UC Santa Cruz. Um, really great program, really great instructors. I had a really beneficial, wonderful experience. I was the first time in my life a teacher's aide, 
which was a whole new thing to experience, you know, but having been um, in the theater and dance captain and those types of things, teaching was not foreign to me. Yeah, I did the one year master's program and finished last June. So June 2020, I finished my master's degree. And luckily through my networking at the college here where I live in Gilroy, California, I had already had a job offer that if and when I had completed that degree that I could come back to the college and immediately get some employment. I love that. Question, did you get any credits from your vast performing experience? Well, I'll tell you how that happened. It did not transfer over to my college credits, but there was a lot of awe (laughs) from, say, teachers and fellow students and stuff that couldn't believe that after I had had such a career and such a life previous to being back in school that were just kind of like, who are you and what are you doing here and why? And, you know, so they're full of questions too, but none of the, none of the performing credits transferred into college credits. However, I am in the middle of negotiating monies at this point. And what that does for me is puts me in a good position because I have what's known as equivalency. Mm-hmm my performing credits and experience there. So that'll probably help me in my negotiations moving forward. That's really good because I feel like, well, a lot of performers didn't go to school because especially if you're a dancer, the peak ages are sometimes during your college years when most uh, Americans go to university. It's an interesting thing. I think that the experience has value because you chose to perform first instead of going to school and then starting your performing career. I just, I was curious to see if you got any sort of recognition for that. Only the recognition of my peers that, you know, it was impressive that I had done, you know, when I said the word cats, everybody was like, what, you know, and just at that level, because I'm, you know, I'm going to school with people that are in their early 20s. Yeah. And so you say something like a Broadway book show and they just can't believe, you know, that you've already been there and um, are back in in study land, <laughs> so to speak. But yeah, yeah. it was an in- interesting road. Let's talk just a little bit about your performing life, because you and I met in the United States, but we both have a love of Europe. How okay. long did you live over there? Well, I'll tell you, the first time that I went to Europe to live in Vienna, Austria, was when I was cast in the musical Cats, and that was in 1989. The summer of 1989 was my first experience going over to Vienna, and that led me to a lengthy, lengthy stay. And then I sort of had this relationship where I would flip-flop back and forth between New York and Vienna, depending on uh, on the employment because I often booked contracts in Vienna because I developed a relationship there and they liked me at the time. And so I was able to get job after job after job, which kept me there. But in the meantime, when there was nothing going on or I was in between contracts, I would run home to my New York apartment and spend about three months or four months in New York with my friends and my roommate, sort of enjoy the city again and get back into that energy. And then I would be back on a plane to Europe before I knew it because the work was there for me. Did you like the productions? Did you like the lifestyle? Did you like the people? Like tell, Mm -hmm. I have so many students who ask me about Europe. Mm -hmm. So I'm really glad that we connected because you're one of the ones that I know you're one of the performers 
that has an extensive European career. Yeah. Um, well, it's funny, you know, some people like don't know how to, I guess it's where your value system lies. And I had just come off of a Broadway stint doing Starlight Express back in the 1980s on roller skates, which if anyone can remember back that far, but for those who may not have that sort of longevity in the career, that was a Broadway show that was done completely on roller skates. And I had just come off of that show when I was 21 years old. And um, then I ran into the Cats audition and it was in Vienna. And I thought, what an exotic experience that could be. And as soon as I booked that job, I knew that I wanted to take advantage of that opportunity because I had a dream of going to Europe as a senior in high school to um, France with the French club that I was never able to uh, complete or take part in because I started working at that age. Like I said, it just depends on where your values lie. I wasn't looking for that Broadway-based, New York-only, United States-only career. I was looking for the experience of having that European uh, new yeah, experience in my life. So off I went and I just fell in love. I mean, if you, you have a love for Europe, so you can appreciate what I'm talking about. The extensive experiences that you, that you come across there and the people, the mixture of people, the mixture of languages, the intercultural experience that you get from being over there. And then learning a new language was a big, big part of my experience. Uh, I didn't speak a second language before moving there. And I didn't speak a word of German before I was cast. So that was part of my experience was to go to school and get that under my belt so that I could be in a place where I understood and was able to communicate with the people. And um, those first shows that I did over the first few years in Europe were all in German. So I was learning things phonetically at first, which is pretty funny because you're just repeating sounds. And at the point you have no idea what you're saying so after going to school for a few months I started to recognize words in the text of cats the show that I was doing at the time and I was like oh I know that word now because I've learned it in school I <laughs> so love it. It, was really, it was really interesting but I just fell in love with the culture just the pace of life being so different than it was in the United States the enjoyment of your spare time and how you spend it with people and with friends and 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 just enjoying a calmer sort of existence. At that time, when I first moved there, you know, the markets and everything were closed on Saturday afternoon and all day Sunday. So you had to get your important grocery shopping done and everything before noon on Saturday. And, um, and that since has changed now. But in the beginning, back in 1989, when I first arrived, that was the culture. And so you had this time to appreciate quiet time. And you had days where there was nothing happening other than to either spend time alone, spend time with your friends, reading a book, whatever it was. And that was just built into their culture. And I really grew to appreciate that. So I, I fell in love with the, with the place immediately. I appreciated that too. And I would look around at a park and see a family sitting there on the ground having a picnic. And I would see people taking walks together. I feel it's unfortunate that people over there don't do that anymore because slower is not necessarily not as good. I, I appreciated the slowdown pace too, because when I went over there, I was running around, you know, you know what the hustle is, taking class, going to auditions, working a survival job. Mm -hmm. 
And then to get there and to be appreciated as an artist, that was pretty incredible. And at that time, the musical theater scene in Europe Germany and Austria specifically, because that's where I was closest to and that's where I was working, was really starting to blossom and explode. And there were um, musical theater training schools popping up all over the place. And one of the most renowned schools in Austria was called Theater an der Wien. And that was also a name of the theater there. But they had a school where they were, you know, training and developing new talent for the musical scene that was really starting to... Uh, come into its own at that time. So I was part of that movement as well, just, just to watch musicals become a main thing in Europe at that time, yeah, where they were starting to do book shows and all that kind of stuff. Is it my understanding that the book shows aren't really happening so much anymore? Well, you know what they do, Elisa, and I can speak mainly from my perspective of living and working in Vienna for such a long time. In the 80s and 90s, they started to bring over shows, book shows, from America, like, you know, Cats was opened in 1983 in Vienna. They brought over shows like Les Mis. They did, uh, we did Kiss of the Spider Woman there in the early 90s. And so they were bringing over the book shows from America or London or wherever they had originated from. And then what started to happen in the scene is uh, they started to take more risks and they started developing new pieces and original works and stuff like that. So I had the opportunity being well-networked there to take part in some of these world productions that were done for the first time, the world premiere productions of some of the shows. Um, I just felt like they decided to branch out and do some of their own material. Does that include Dance of the Vampires? It does. That was one of the first, well, the first production was in Vienna, which I was a part of, was with Roman Polanski at that wow. time. And he was the director and it was kind of like interesting to be working with Roman Polanski, you know, having heard about his reputation in the United States and everything. But uh, yeah, Dance of the Vampires was originally produced in Vienna, Austria in the 90s, some, somewhere around 96, I would say 97. What's your favorite show that you've ever done? Oh, wow. You know that that's a hard question to answer. <laughs> I have to, you know, I, I do have to say it was probably Cats of all the productions I've been a part of, which I have loved so many of them and because the experiences are so varied. But Cats was my first like leading, big leading role. I played the Rum Tum Tugger. It was the first time that I had that responsibility in a production outside of a college production or a high school production, that type of thing. So, and then I did that show in Vienna for a year. And then I was cast in the original Zurich company in Switzerland in the same part. Um, and I did that show for a little over a year as well. So it's sort of like where my heart landed because it's where I first you know, had the experience of my life changing so much. If you had any advice to give to your former self, mm. what would you say? What would you tell young Brian? I would tell young Brian, and I speak to young Brian, but I speak to Brian when he's about 29, 30 years old. I say, enjoy what you have because it's not guaranteed. You can, there's a lot at stake in this business. Like you said, in some of your, in your podcasts that I was listened to, we talked, you talked about networking and about how your, um, your work ethic and 
and how your relationships and how your reputation and how all these things play a factor. And I, though I never suffered any serious consequences, I felt like sometimes I could have been more on the ball a little bit about how I handled things personally in my private life, as opposed to my professional career. I was somehow able to manage everything professionally very well when in times in my personal life, things were a little bit stormy. Yeah. Yeah. And that's another thing too. It's that uh, oftentimes, especially on a tour or in when you're away, you live and work with the same group of people and you often socialize with them too. You can be as private as you can be, but yet a lot of people tend to know things about you just because of the amount of time that they spend with you. If I, if I had to um, talk to myself, I think I would have said to myself, like, don't date anybody that you work with. Like, <laughs> no, 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 no. You know, hindsight is twenty twenty. When all you're doing is you living in the theater, who else are you seeing, right? Yes. So yes. It, it's all good. And you know what? I'm sure that given to given the chance to do it all over again, would we really change anything? Yeah, I can't say that I would. The times that I had, even in, in turbulent times, I was enjoying life. I loved my career. Things were going well. Um, and I had a good friend. I, German words keep popping up because I'm thinking about Vienna, but uh, a circle of friends and, and relationships that were deepening as every production. Like you said, you spend so much time with people in each production. And I was networked into a group of people who were hired consistently. And so I had years where we were doing different shows together, but it became like a close-knit family. So that's why I'm saying even in turbulent times for myself, when I was privately struggling with things and you would have this support system because these people knew you, they loved you, they respected you as a person, they respected your work and they wanted the best for you. So they were always there for you. And I couldn't have that's what I would have never have changed. Yeah. It's almost like a rep company after a while. You just keep seeing the same people over and over. And you learn how to work with people, even if sometimes the relationship isn't quite simpatico, you you know you have to see them every day. So you just learn how to work with everybody, right? Yeah, yes, for sure. That's a really that's what I would say to anyone new and upcoming. And in my former self too, you have no choice but to work well with others and play well with others. Otherwise, it only comes back to cause you trouble if you're not able to do that, I would imagine. Luckily, I was able to to do that as well. So you're a director now. How have any of the directors that you've worked with influenced you? Good question. I, well, what's been great is because I have had the opportunity to work with some, you know, A-list directors and then others that have been as wonderful as the well-known directors that I've worked with. Um, I just wanted to, when I was directing my first production a couple of years ago at UC Santa Cruz, it was an, an original piece written by a student and it dealt with themes of homelessness and poverty and drug addiction and all all of these types of things. And I just knew that you had to develop that trusting relationship with your actors in order that you would best be able to advise them on how to bring to life the story that you were trying to tell. And I learned that early on 
from the musical theater scene because of the people that I worked with. They always made me feel valued. They made me feel able and confident. There were never any times where I was trodden upon my pride or my talent or anything like that. And I knew that that as a director was something that I wanted to be able to establish early on in my directing career so that I could work with these people at a level of de and depth that they would, you know, um, agree to. I love it. Yeah. I love it. And I just love seeing you now because I, the last time we worked together was 20 years ago. Yeah. And to see where you've gone and all the different places and jobs. And yet here we are talking to each other. It's really special and know, it's, it's really wonderful. terrific. Yeah, I know. <laughs> uh, part of the reason I wanted to do this podcast is because I get constantly asked by my students, tell us about this, tell us about this. And as you know, in a dance class, we're supposed to be dancing. So I wanted to offer something else to the world where I can tell our stories and my friends can tell their stories. Do you have any special on stage memory? Were you in the company of Chicago the night that Vicki Lewis tripped during Cell Block Tango? Were you in that in the company of, were you there that night? Well, I was there for the entirety of Vicky's stay, on, okay. at least on the national tour. Later, she went on to Broadway and those things. But in the national tour, I was part of that company, but I was um, probably off stage doing my own thing at that point. I do not remember that happening. However, I do remember, you know, the, the entire time with Vicki Lewis being a Velma in our company when we played together. Yeah. Well, that was a time where it was a Sunday night and I was in my dressing room because I was the swing in that company and I was packing up and she fell on one of those cane chairs Oh dear! and they had to close during, you know, the end of cell block tango when they're singing, he had it coming yeah. and um, she tripped and I heard in the dressing room, the speaker was on, I heard a big thud. And then I heard silence. And then I heard my name being called over the intercom. Sharon Moore was playing Liz and they yeah. moved her into Velma and they mo moved me into Liz. Five minutes later, I'm on stage singing, We Want Billy. Yes, <laughs> as it happens, right? Isn't that just par for the course? It's just par for the course as a swing, isn't it? Oh my God. Oh yes. Oh yes. Has any, like Starlight Express, you might have some stories about oh, wipeouts. Oh my goodness. For sure. That show, you know, I saw something um, and I did not watch it in its entirety, but there was something on Facebook a couple months ago. And it was saying that Starlight Express is now viewed as the most dangerous uh, musical that had ever been produced. And that's a true thing because you, you can talk to people from different companies. You, you know, there were companies in new, not only New York, but on national tour in Japan, in Germany, where it's still running today. But that's all you hear about is the incredible wipeouts and how the injuries and stuff like that. I do have a story about being, you know, a young lad in his only first and only I will have to clarify that Broadway show um, where I was skating around the audience and because the audience was enclosed inside of a track there and I was leading a little train of women behind me and I tripped and I fell off the stage into the second row of people in my roller skates and had to just keep up my French character because I played Bubba the French train <laughs> and at the same time trying to save face you know the show must go on and so your immediate 
immediate response to something is to get up. Just like when you fall in real life, you just, your whole thing is to get up. And so I just found my way back to the stage, apologized to the people the best I could and kept going with the show. But that was a moment of embarrassment that I've never felt on stage before, you know? And those skates are heavy too. I can imagine somebody getting a skate in the lap or the leg or something. Exactly. That was my concern is like, those things will bruise you heavily. And the costumes were also heavy, but luckily our bodies were in such shape that you were able to lift those, you know, 40 pound costumes around and, and just survive. <laughs> but well, that's, that's another question that yes. I love that story. Yeah. Um, being in shape, because we often, you know, when I'm teaching, I tell the students, it's not about being skinny or being a certain size. It's about can your body handle, like you said, a 40 pound costume? And can you handle not just eight performances a week, but eight performances at a certain level, you know, like you don't want the performances to deteriorate as the week goes on. You have to maintain a certain standard of excellence. So how important for you is physical fitness? And when you were in your dancing, dancing days, what did you do to really stay in shape? Well, um, when I wasn't working, um, well, there were two parts to that question. The first part is like when you're not working, you're training for sure. And then when you are working, you're working and you're training. So there's a lot going on there. When you are a working performer, it doesn't stop there. We all know from the years of experience that the training never stopped. And something that was great about my experience working in, um, in Europe was that they would incorporate these ballet classes or jazz warm ups or vocal warmups, they would have that offered as part of part of the job. And so you were required to, and not everybody did, but you had the opportunity every day to take a ballet bar or to take a jazz warm up or to take part in a vocal exercise or a vocal warm up with the company. And that was just part of the contract. And I, you know, that's a great thing because I didn't have to go out and I didn't most of the time did not. I went to the gym because in those days as a dancer, you want to stay in your best shape. And a lot of boys and women, you know, take part in some sort of physical activity at a gym, lifting weights, doing cardio, doing Pilates, whatever it might be. But um, that was offered and that really kept me in line um, while I was performing abroad and stuff. And then say like on national tour, when we were doing Chicago together, there was a group of boys that we'd run to the gym every day and do our workout, you know, because your body had to look a certain way to be in those costumes. (laughs) Um, But as far as physical fitness today, like I'll have to say as an adult male, you know, a matured adult male now, I have allowed myself that 15 pounds that, you know, that gets on your body when you're no longer as active as you were. And I, and you're no longer, I don't consider myself a dancer anymore. I have to look at that as a different time in my life. And so you have to sort of accept with what comes with that becoming more what I might call pedestrian looking, you know, I'm not I don't have that waistline. I don't have those biceps. I don't have those legs that I used to have as a dancer and stuff. But I do like to stay um, in a healthy mindset. And I do like to keep my body at a, in a weight range that I can accept as somebody who comes from a field of vanity. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you have to learn to accept growing older. You have to accept what comes with that. But then I also believe it's our responsibility and our desire to remain as fit as we possibly can in whatever we're doing. Also, just letting go of actionism that we used to have mm-hmm. because 
I feel lucky to be here when so many of our friends are not anymore. So I feel like it's okay to get older, just do it with style, do it with grace, but let like for me too, with my face, you know, some lines are coming in around the eyes and I'm like, (laughs) it's okay. It's okay. Like (laughs) you could, you could get the squirt squirt, but what like you're not fooling anybody, Michelle, you know, and it's, and you, earn those lines you know and it's okay it's okay but we have always been perfectionists because that's we wanted to be the best or we wanted to be the best we could be and even in a ballet class you don't just do a tendu you really stretch your foot to the maximum so letting go of it's vanity it's but it's also just like when you're used to that kind of appearance you want to hold on to that and it's okay like it's all part of life but we are still um you know we're still performing artists even if we have a few extra pounds and that's you know it's okay yeah you move on and you have to embrace it like you said you know sometimes i i see pounds on my face where i used to have cheekbones or i see you know things like that and you just have to embrace it as and move on and become that become that what you are you know we had we were 20 something at one point and those bodies at 30 something were still looking pretty good and everything and I probably had to start accepting. I stopped dancing in my late, no, early mid forties. And, um, you know, and then that changed my body. And I had to sort of go like, at first I was really reluctant to accept it. I didn't know how to be that because I had never been that I was always in shape, but it's just part of it. And now I'm an actor, you know, if, if I have the opportunity to act, I'm not going to be cast as those in those roles that I was at that age. I played, um, I had the luck to play Lord Capulet in a production of Romeo and Juliet, which was really an honor, but that only came because I was the right age. I was the right type. I looked a certain way, you know, my, those 10 or 15 pounds that I had put on since my twenties didn't matter because they were casting somebody of my type age range and all those things. So I've learned to just embrace the aging. I don't have it. I'm not, uh, I don't hold a grudge against getting older. Um, It certainly brought me like I'm a lot wiser than I was when I was 25 or 30 even. And I appreciate that. And I think that's something that we can hold on to as, as maturing performing artists. Well said. Do you have any goals for this year? Which I know in the pandemic, it's kind of hard to make goals, but do you have anything you really want to accomplish? in the near future? Yes. The thing that what's my big challenge coming up in the next month here is that um, now that I have my degrees in place and I have employment lined up that I will be actually the instructor of my first acting class by myself. So I'm hoping and, you know, like what's really funny is I was telling my my parent, my father, you know, I said, it's just a natural thing to sort of get these nerves about something you have not yet experienced or have not yet stepped into that you might get nervous about it or feel a little bit insecure. And then I look back and I'm like, no, you've done this for years. You've just done in a different capacity. And so my big goal is to step into this new role as the instructor. If they want to call me Professor Carmack, I'll laugh, but you know, who who to thunk, but um, is to do it successfully and well. And I think that I will because I have the past experience of my performing career. And then I have the experience of having led, you know, classes last year while I was studying in graduate school and 
stuff like that. And so that's really my goal is to give these new actors who I'm going to be in charge of or responsible for um, something that they can take away of value because that's what I was given during, you know, during all those years in my career. I have a lot of experience in different areas and I think that I have a lot to share. And so I'm hoping that they'll take away something of value from from my instruction and the experience they'll have with me as their instructor. I think they are lucky to have you. Thank you. How nice for them to go out in the world, being taught by you, getting basics of acting and the craft instilled in them by you. It's that's kind of thrilling, you know, and then your story goes on through all these new people. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Because isn't that just how it happens? I mean, all of think of all the wonderful things and wonderful people that we've worked with that you've worked with in your career. You had that wonderful experience that you talked about in your podcast with Bayard Lee. And then we both had that wonderful and, you know, God bless her, rest in peace, Annie Reinking, that we were able to work directly with her. And um, just if I look across the, you know, the pool of people that I've had the opportunity to learn from that I know that what I'm going to give to my students that is infused with their influence because it could yeah, have any other way. I was shocked when I heard of Annie's passing and I am, I haven't processed it yet because I have a whole, I could do like a whole two hour episode on, I used to idolize her as a child. And um, my, when I was in performing arts school, I saw all that jazz, which they showed it to us like way (laughs) too early. I was going to say that's kind of (laughs) Yeah, like inappropriate. But, but anyway, just seeing her work, it was like a lightning bolt. And I have always said that my whole career has just been trying to chase after that feeling that I had when I saw that movie for the first time. I have to echo you on that. My mother took me to see that because I had no training in the arts or anything, but I had, um, I sang in the choir in high school. And when that movie came out, for some reason, I knew that I had to see it. And I didn't know why. I just saw the, you know, the TV advertisements. And I told my mom, we have to go see that. But I believe it was rated R. At oh, yeah. I, yeah, it was not it wasn't kidding around. <laughs> and so my mother took me to see it. And I knew right then and there, I was like, I want to do that. From the very opening scene of the audition, I was like, I have to be part of that somehow, some way that has to be something I do at some point in my life. But yeah, that, so that fussy cool. sensuality, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it just went like right to the core of me. And when I would work with her in person, I had to really like say to myself, like in the bathroom before rehearsal, like don't fangirl, you breathe and don't googly eye her. Like, because here she was in the flesh, standing right next to me, touching me, working with me. And I would just say to myself, how lucky are you? Your dream is coming true right before your very eyes. Like keep breathing, keep breathing. So it was pretty magical to work with her. You know, there's so much I could say. I'm still in shock that she has left us. I'm just, I I can't even like, I'm not even ready to process it yet. And I'm sure that my heart goes out to her family and her friends, everybody that loves her because she was truly one of a kind. Yes. Yes, a true, true. And what a woman and what a talent and how lucky we were to have experienced that greatness in our lifetime. So up close and personal. Did you help set the Berlin Company of Chicago? I did because I was- Do you know uh, my friend Anya? 
who played I, Kitty? Of course I know Anya. Oh my of god. She I, I did an episode with her and I stay with her sometimes when I go to Berlin. Um mm-hmm. she's she's crushing the film and TV scene. I know over there. I see her posts on uh Facebook all the time, and I'm like, how wonderful for her that she went from that theater stage musical career directly crossing over into TV and film and what a what a type she is and and what a beauty she is and all of those things that she always has been. Now she's able to do it in another way. That's amazing. Yeah. Yes. And I yeah. I've learned a lot over the past few years about work ethic from her. And it's funny too. I don't think I talked about this when I was uh, on her podcast episode, but when I wa- when I stood in the doorway at Teatro des Vestens, because I had finished my Chicago, my uh, A Chorus Line European tour, I started rehearsals two weeks late for Damn Yankees. Mm-hmm. And they allowed that when I got hired. I explained that I still was under contract for Chorus Line and they said, it's okay. But I stood in the doorway during rehearsal and she looked at me and she motioned with her hand to come sit with her and I didn't know her and I just was like oh how nice that is to have someone do that like you're the new girl and they say come sit over here so yeah she's she's an amazing girl lady Uh, I forget I forget at this point right I I know know, we're all grown up (laughs) (laughs) I forget that we're not Well, I hope that you get to come back. Will you come back on this podcast? Absolutely. I'm willing to talk about anything. It's been a joy and it's so good to see you. And what a what a great thing. You know, we have to thank Facebook and we have to thank all this technology that 20 years later we can find each other and go, hey, let's catch up. And, and I've watched you along the way here. And I'm so proud of you for developing this because that's a brave thing to do. And it's creative and it gives you such an opportunity to just voice your creativity and and share experiences because a lot of us have really, really important, good stories to tell, which other people can enjoy and benefit from. So I thank thank you you. for for bringing me on and I will do this again anytime. The stories to me are the most fun. The stories, um, you know, the jobs are great, but the people that you meet and the stories to me make every six o'clock morning that you stand outside for two hours worth it. Yes, I know it's that you got to encourage the young ones. It's well worth the struggle because the reward is just that it's such a reward. And so all of that work that you put into it and those early mornings and those classes and all that stuff and all the time and all the energy and everything, it's worth it because you experience something very, very magical. The Showgirl Tip of the Day podcast has original music composed by Joshua Holloway. Find him on YouTube, Joshua Holloway Music. This podcast is written by Michelle Bruckner and edited by Michelle Bruckner and Joshua Holloway. Find me on Instagram, Showgirl Tip of Day. Thanks for listening. We'll see you again next week with a new episode. Show, show.